Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Oh, and welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Uh, Jude, Anna, what did you bring to Ivanova's quarters, incorrectly thinking that this was a date? So it's this, this little yellow triangle thing that has dangly bells that jingle when you uh <laughs> when you dangle it from side to side i brought fear because <laughs> I, I i i'm 100 percent sure that the only thing besides talia that turns on susan ivanova is the fear of a subordinate just in case you in, in case you don't remember that's that's the thing that the lumati give her yeah saying, no, yeah okay okay which I'm pretty sure is just a, like... It's a cock ring. That's what it is. I mean, it might be. <laughs> wow, we're really, we're re- like, we're only like... We're in good form. We're like eight we're seconds like- in and we've already dropped cock ring, So that really sets the tone <laughs> for where this is going. All right. Yeah, tonight we are covering uh, two episodes from season three. These are going to be episodes six and seven, Dust to Dust and Exogenesis. That's a lot of S's. Yeah. First, we're going to be starting off with episode six, Dust to Dust. Uh, Jude, please take us away. All right. Uh, Hey, dang, I get to do an episode without a content warning. Cool. Let's go. I mean, Uh, there's going to be copious drug use in this episode. Fuck you. (laughs) I mean, that is true. I was all excited there for a second. Yes, there is copious drug. No, there's not copious. No. One guy use no you, nobody is depicted using drugs Fair. you just see a couple of people on drugs there's a difference okay uh our episode begins speaking of which uh with a lesson in the difference between sedition and opinion nameless would-be nazi number four aka aryan Nightwatch dude is harassing vaguely ethnic looking shop owner over kick the assassin out of earth dome posters that are up in his shop When Sheridan confronts him, he tries to pull rank on the captain, unbelievably, which goes about as well as you'd expect. And then the captain turns it around on him and threatens him with punishment if he continues to harass people with illegal bullshit. He replies, I was just following orders, as if he's literally never heard of the Nuremberg trials. But maybe he hasn't. Uh, I don't know. There's plenty of dipshits in law enforcement today that apparently never heard of it. They literally referenced the German-American Bund. Yeah, which is a great line. Uh, that shop owner clearly has a better education than like half the cops in the United States. Ivanova arrives in security, having been summoned, I'm sure she loved that, by Garibaldi, who cheerfully tells her that her favorite person is on the line and takes Bester off hold. Who knows how long he's been there? Just to say he's seven hours away chasing a threat to Earth, your station, and the Psycor. That probably could have been an email, buddy. Uh, and certainly wasn't worth getting Ivanova for, though she does get a very good dig at Psychor. Uh, Garibaldi expresses skepticism that there's a good reason for his visit. Uh, and then we get a great cut directly from that line to a lurker flipping the butt hell out about a mountain falling on him and then hulking out on a pipe and beating the purple hell out of someone with it. At the awkward surplus CPK table of rebellion, the command staff plus Delenn review the situation. Delenn, having never dealt with Bester, needs a refresher on why this asshole can't be trusted. As do the audience. Yeah, as do the audience, apparently. Hey, so it's a new season. We've got new viewers. Yeah, that's right. TLDR, there's absolutely no assurance that he won't immediately scan them and discover that they are up to no good. Garibaldi tells it plain. Once Bester scans them, either he goes home and they all end up tried for sedition and executed, or they kill Bester. Franklin chooses that moment to apparently remember that he's a doctor and he's supposed to have a moral compass, which is pretty horseshit, but for once this episode isn't about Franklin's lack of ethical fortitude. Ivanova is 
sorely disappointed that nobody seems on board with the kill Buster idea except for her. She brings it up like twice more before being roundly vetoed. Uh, I want to take one moment from my summary because they aren't long enough already uh, (laughs) to point out that, well, outright murder by the command staff is relatively unusual and even justified homicide in the form of, you know, like cops killing people of dubious innocence or like Garibaldi does or you know, like military actions are even relatively uncommon. Uh, these are military individuals. They've all killed people in the line of duty. They've all blown people up. Sheridan and Ivanova fly star furies and shoot people out of the sky all the time. Franklin's a terrible doctor. I'm sure he leaves corpses all over the place. The fact that they're sitting around being judgmental about killing Bester to save the lives of their entire command staff and their whole rebellion of the light against the obviously authoritarian president is so remotely so preposterous that they would be like we can't possibly kill this guy to something something honor something something rebellion as if like this thing they're doing is not going to at some point involve violence like okay aside over i'm just saying stupid Anyway, Delenn says, suggests some outside-of-the-box thinking. Good job, Delenn. In MedLab, Franklin is apparently having a real lucid day between the moralizing and now this, so he's actually being a doctor. Uh, and is treating the lurker who was flipping his shit like a flapjack. He's moaning about the mountain falling on him still when another patient is brought in comatose. Uh, Franklin is immediately an asshole to the female doctor who, with the face of someone used to being dismissed for their gender, patiently waits for him to catch up as she explains that this patient was caught in a landslide six months ago. Franklin stares at her until he finally puts it together. A mountain fell on her. Landslide. And he grudgingly thanks her, then orders her to, to test the patient for neural damage, and then has the first patient tested for something called dust. As they are rolled off, she asks him if he's all right, and he grudgingly apologizes for being a butthole. But before he can say more, he gets a link. Bester has arrived. But he hasn't docked yet, and he almost doesn't. Ivanova clears CNC with the thinnest possible excuse of all time, one that I'm sure nobody believed, and begins to order the defense grid active and then stands there muttering to herself about how she's been saying for weeks that it's been acting up. And then she actually orders it to fire on Bester. It is only belayed at the last possible second by Sheridan. I forgot that part. Yeah. I forgot that she actually told it to fire. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that. Sheridan belays the order uh, and then gives her a nice dad speech about being the bigger person, blah, 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 whatever. It's stupid. Uh, and then disables the defense grid and tells Bester to dock. Uh, Bester storms onto the station all in a tizzy because he was sitting out there so long and he ran out of peanuts uh, and then fe- felt a great sense of personal danger, uh, which I call bullshit on because Bester's a huge piece of shit and there's no way he doesn't get impending sense of danger everywhere he goes. <laughs> he arrives in the captain's office and to his great surprise and displeasure finds that each person there has his own Minbari telepath at their shoulder. Together, the Minbari are intended to block Bester from scanning anyone. Bester is, to put it lightly, not amused. Uh, He says that they can't conduct business around these outsiders and makes a casual slip about dissecting Talia to try and get a rise out of them. Ivanova points this out uh, and angrily suggests that they go back to the killing Bester plan. Then the captain issues an ultimatum. Bester can take the sleeper drug, or the Minbari telepaths are there for all business they conduct. Bester gives a hilariously condescending speech about trust, and then takes the drugs. A few hours later, once the drug is fully kicked in, he swings back around and lays out the problem. A drug called dust. It activates latent telepathic genes and lets a person invade another's mind. Dust is a threat to the Psychor because when the victim of an invasion is a telepath, they rarely recover. Bester believes that a major distributor of dust is on B5, with a plan to sell it as a weapon of war. Hmm, who do we know might want an invisible weapon of war, Bester asks. The captain and Garibaldi exchange meaningful glances. Hmm, 
we cut to a man who already has an invisible weapon of war, his charisma. Jakar is berating a human with an unfortunate goatee for selling dust on the station. He apparently is there to sell the dust to Jakar. Uh, he wants to use it as a weapon in the, in the war against the Centauri. They can use it to extract secrets and fuck up the Centauri and just generally be assholes with it, which honestly sounds like a good plan. But there, there's a question of whether or not the drug will even work with the Narn. Because the problem is, that, as Bester discussed, it works by activating the latent telepathic gene. And there's never been any Narn telepaths that the dealer knows about. Uh, Jakar corrects him and reveals that there were once Narn telepaths, but their families were all exterminated, no word on by whom, and they've never been able to breed a natural one since. The dealer warns him that it may have unintended side effects and asks who he's going to get to test it on. Jakar angrily dismisses him. On the Zocalo, Garibaldi and Bester are having a nice romantic stroll. Bester mentions the silence, and Garibaldi, like an idiot, asks him what he means. Bester explains that he means telepathic silence, and Garibaldi negs him, in response to which Bester lays into him about how they're both human and they both want to protect Earth, but they don't have to agree on methods, and blah, blah, blah. They end up interrogating a suspect, I guess it's a working date, Garibaldi is obviously familiar with, asking him what he knows about dust. He claims to know nothing, but Garibaldi isn't having that, at which point Bester chimes in with, lying, and the guy gets freaked out, saying, he's got rights. Bester demurs, saying, yes, of course, you, you do have rights. But it's just the strong emotions like lying. They, they just project the, the thoughts so loud. But uh, yeah, strike that from the record. You know, you're, you're totally right. You have your rights. It's fucking hilarious to watch Bester just ham up the threat that he represents. The guy immediately flips and gives up the dealer, giving up his location and the fake name he's using. Garibaldi is unexpectedly annoyed that someone else abused their authority in his holding cell. Maybe a little turned on? Who can say? <laughs> Back in Jakar's quarters, we see that he's taken the drug himself and trashed the absolute shit out of it. He groans the word Malari and staggers out. In the elevator, we get some good rainbow-hued psychotropic visions, and he hears some thoughts from passersby. Did you guys ever... Okay. <laughs> Did you ever go to, like, the zoo and get that little thing that you hold up to your eye and you spin it around and it's got, like, a like a faceted lens in it, but it doesn't oh, actually yeah. ever change... It doesn't actually, like, make you make it, like, bug-eye vision. It just kind of makes everything sort of rainbowy and spinny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's what this looks like. That's what his, like, yeah. drug vision looks like. It just kind of puts a faint rainbow haze there. I was really worried when you start off with, did you ever go to the zoo over how that sentence was going to end? It could have gone a lot of places. I freely grant you that. In the B-plot, meanwhile, there is a B-plot, kind of. Veer has arrived back from Minbar on B5, much to Londo's obvious pleasure, wearing what he says is a Minbari ceremonial coat of welcome, but what really looks like 90s bathroom wallpaper. He's pleased as punch and looks like a white guy coming back from Jamaica with braids. When we find them next, Veer is watching with his customary uncomfortable expression back in place as Londo negotiates with a Drazi mediated by the Minbari. They want a buffer zone, but the Drazi are pissed off. They call the Centauri liars and want the mediator so that when Londo lies, there's a third-party witness. When Lanier asks Londo what kind of buffer the Centauri are looking for, he asks them for seven colony worlds to the Drazi's fury. When they refuse, rather than negotiate, he simply walks out and threatens to bomb their world like the Narnholm world. Veer tries to talk to Delenn and Lanier about Londo, but they look visibly awkward about it, with Lanier giving what sounds like a religious aphorism about the darkness carried in the soul not changing when one changes location. Back in Londo's quarters, Londo is reading Veer's report on Minbar. Veer looks very nervous, as well he should be. Can you imagine Londo giving constructive criticism? And Londo, it turns out, has some thoughts. And in a truly magical sequence in which Londo flips every nice thing Veer has to say about the Minbari into some grim condemnation of their culture, uh, they go through a whole litany of problems that Londo has with the Minbari. Veer's sputtering exasperation on behalf of his own effort and his host's dignity is a bit of comedic genius. 
And now our plots collide. The door rings and Veer answers it. Off screen, while Londo pours a drink, we hear a not at all very satisfying thump. Malari turns to find Jakar holding up our precious baby Veer like half a sack of laundry. He snarls at Londo and we cut away. Uh, Justin, would you like to describe how, in the outline, you have a very, very specific description of Jakar in this scene that I would like to have in the summary so that it is highlighted. Jakar is lifting Veer off of his feet and he just like looks the camera, mugs, and snarls. And the immediate thought I had was the SNL quote, Mark me down as scared and horny. Yes, absolutely <laughs> on point. 100% correct. In a docking bay somewhere, Garibaldi and Bester continue to flirt on the job, with Garibaldi pretending to give a shit about due process, and Bester wishing he had his power so he could show off for Garibaldi. Garibaldi, meanwhile, wishes he could beat off Bester with a bat, uh, and they talk about pinatas. They flirt a bit more, but are interrupted by Garibaldi's link. The drug dealers show up. They get busted. Garibaldi and Bester both get to shoot someone. All in all, it's a very cute date, and it seems like it's gone well. But Garibaldi jinxes it by saying, with any luck, we got to it before anyone else got hurt. Cut to Londo lying in the corner of a room somewhere and down below, bloody and beat all to shitting back. Nearby, Jakar lurks over him out of his damn mind while Londo grovels. We get a flashback to Londo being given the title of ambassador and learn that at the time the, the posting was considered a joke and Londo was the only one stupid enough to take it, uh, which Jakar laughs hilariously at. Just, just fucking dies laughing at him. It's very good. Uh, then Jakar sees him take talking to Morden and realizes that Londo is the one behind the whole invasion. He is the linchpin behind this whole sequence of events that led to the downfall of his world. Jakar, infuriated, threatens to rip the whole conspiracy from his mind, neuron by neuron. We get a rapid flash vision and then a voice. It changes and turns into his father, hung by his wrists from a broken down tree. He and his vision, vision father speak about Narn turning away from the cycle of death with the Centauri. He tries to tell Jakar to be something greater, to uh, step away from the cycle of violence. Then he says, I have always been here, and turns into a vision of Jalan. Ah, now we understand what bullshit is going on. When Jakar comes to, he weeps, and the camera peels up to reveal Kosh standing in the, dis in the corner watching. Ah, uh, like a creeper <laughs> like a jerking creeper. off. Yeah, that that is my note. The, yes, that, that isn't my. I'm note. stealing that from from Justin, uh, and it's 100 percent accurate. In med lab, Veer watches Londo recover, uh, while Jakar is brought up on charges. He declines counsel and pleads guilty on all charges. Sheridan makes a truly inappropriate attempt to speak on Jakar's behalf, but the judge dismisses him. Jakar gets no less than 60 days in station prison. Jakar weirdly looks pleased. Uh, Garibaldi tries to give him back his copy of the Book of Jaquan, but Jakar tells him, no, you can keep it. I am now somewhat closer to the source. In docking, we say Bester and Garibaldi saying their goodbyes. Garibaldi, like all men drunk on their own heteronormative toxic masculinity, refuses to just say goodbye and say he'll miss Bester, but Bester seems more open to his feelings and tells Garibaldi that he thought they made a good team. As he is leaving, though, Bester meets with another Psychop, and they reveal in discussion that the Psychor created Dust to try and wake up Latence, but it hasn't worked. Bester apparently was against it, and he's glad to have finally put the experiment to bed. As we close, we see Jakar in prison, meditating on the words of his father slash Jalan slash Kosh. Uh, I feel like I should add a final caveat at the end of the summary that, no, there was no awkward romantic tension between Garibaldi and Bester, but the episode's a little bit more fun if you imagine that there was. So, or was there? Or was there? Uh, or was there? I just think that maybe that explains a lot of the aggression that Garibaldi has towards Bester. There, the I do like one of the scenes between them where it's it's one of those things where 
Garibaldi almost like being self-aware moments. Yeah. It's the line where Bester is like, yes, I I intimidate I bluffed and I intimidated him using my badge and my uniform. Like you use your badge and your uniform, buddy. And yeah. it's it's a it's a good line. Yeah. God, there's so much going on in this episode. Uh we will talk about Jakar in a moment. Uh, let's talk about some of the other fun stuff in this episode, because it's just packed to the gills with stuff. Uh, I do want to talk first, though, about Ivanova. Um, oh, yeah. This episode really fits neatly into the arc we've had brewing of Ivanova's relationship with the Psychor, uh, specifically the idea that they have taken so much from her over the last two seasons, mm -hmm. over her lifetime, and then now over the last two seasons, that she has reached the point where she is ready to save her coworkers and her friends to fucking blow a psychop out of the sky, blame it on a thinly veiled computer excuse, and throw her career away. She does it. This isn't like a... She's ready to do it. She does it. She gives the command and is saved yeah. only at the last second by Sheridan. Yeah. That's bonkers. That's how yeah. far they've, that's how far she's been pushed with this psychor stuff. It really feels like she, like, uh, uh, I mean, because apparently counselor, like therapists don't exist in the Babylon five universe. <laughs> um, like this is the thing where it's like, I think part of it is that it feels like Ivanova does is sort of I don't want to say directionless, but it feels like she is sort of like in a holding pattern for her life uh, post Talia, where she doesn't have anything to steer her or motivate her. This feels like something that somebody who is deeply is in a deeply depressed state does. Yeah, that's a really good observation that this is definitely a super self-destructive thing you do when you feel like you've lost everything. It's yeah. a it's a very nihilistic move. Yeah. The other the other really good Ivanova point is when Bester is needling them with with Talia and you know at her debriefing and dis uh totally not dissection. <laughs> It's Garibaldi who reacts because, like, you know, they had the the blatant thing where Garibaldi was disgusting and apparently attracted to Talia. But you can see it's a nice piece of acting from Claudia Christian because you can just see the like the sadness in her yeah. face as she like and as she is the one who's just like, no, fucking quit it. You have to keep. Keep your chill. Yeah. Like, well, and I think, as she's telling herself to keep her chill. I, I watched that scene again. I watched it twice. And the thing I noticed on the second time through is Ivanova is the first one to react to Talia's name. Yeah. She like twitches and looks up when he starts to say dissection. Like she jerks towards yeah. him and then controls and pulls it back down. And then and she, Garibaldi she's pops had a, up. She's had a lifetime of experience of yeah. like keeping her keeping her emotions in check. Yeah. Then it's like Garibaldi fucking quit it. Yeah. God, Ivanova and Telepaths, man. That's one of yep. the saddest, most fucked up like plot threads uh in this show. Something that I like sort of feel I, I like I, I would probably have to go back and watch his first two appearances to compare. But there feels like there is a shift in Bester's character in this episode. How so? Especially with him not having his powers, he seems a lot more coy. And it seems like he is much more, especially with Garibaldi, but just like, he seems to take a lot more joy in his work. He's much more jovial. Yeah. And, yeah. He's, and he's specifically enjoying fucking with everybody to a level that I don't <laughs> think we saw in his first couple appearances. Yeah. It's the, I mean, they've they've taken away his his power. So I mean, even even before then, 
yeah. like when he is when he's scolding Sheridan about about being like better friends and more trust. Yeah, that whole uh, speech in the like, office is so fucking good. And it's I mean, so okay, smarmy. I do want to also say that like the look on Sheridan's face when he's like. Look at what I've got here with the Midbar with it's revealed they have the Midbari telepaths. That shit eating grin. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly how I was about to describe it. I like yeah. The there's a line that he Besser has there who's like, Where's the trust? And it's just such a good line. It's delivered so nicely. And like the way he he says, like, Okay, yeah, I will take it if it I will take the drugs if this calms your hysteria. Um, oh, God. Which is a yeah. really specific choice of words, and it's yeah. shit, and it's, yeah. But it's like the the way it's like, okay, you're being unreasonable, but if it'll let me do my job, I'll acquiesce here. It's just like it's a new level of shit from him that I enjoy. And it's great. Oh, and and I speaking of that scene, I love the moment where Sheridan just out and out says so. Do you think we know about you or you know more about us? It's the yeah. it's the like mutually assured destruction thing that they've had going on for the last two seasons. Yeah. With with Bester. The balance of power there between them is always really interesting and it's played with very very openly in this episode. Cuz it's not obvious, it's not obvious that they have more on Bester than Bester has on them. But they have enough that Bester doesn't want to fuck with it. Yeah. Dust, obviously. And we don't learn this till the end of this, this of this episode. But it's clear that Bester wants to get Dust wrapped up as quietly as possible. Yeah. And, now, and we learn why at the end of this episode. I think Dust is a really interesting invention for this episode. Yeah. It's, it's also a really interesting sci-fi drug choice. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's been referenced before in the show. It's been I think, name dropped, but we've yeah. never learned anything about it before. The the concept of like a telepathic drug that lets you relive somebody else's life in a matter of minutes is just a wild sci-fi concept. Yeah. But it's also a really fucked up drug because there's no like... It's not like you take the drug and then you have super cool telepathic sex. Like, no, it's not like that. Like, no, yeah. there's an explicit element of violation in yeah. in what happens. Um, it's only it can only be used to violate someone else's mind. It can't be used in any kind of a consensual, peaceful way. It's a very, very violent drug in all aspects. Yeah. So of course the psychor made it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there could be a some parallels that I'm sure you could draw with how uh, certain elements of the U.S. government allowed uh, certain narcotics to be or imported certain narcotics into the United States, uh, paying for that to fund wars and bringing those into American cities. I mean, I'm sure you could draw. Whatever conclusions you want from that. <laughs> Some bits that I, I, I like here. I just want to go on a couple Jakar things. Please do. Please do. Let's do that. I love like that the first thing he thinks is, I got psychic powers. Londo, baby. Yeah, his first yeah. thought is, I'm going to go fuck up Londo. Um, I also like... Um, this is it's a cool costuming thing because we uh but like when we see him leave the out the 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 transport tube or whatever the fuck they call it uh we get like a very we get like a full body shot of Jakar from the back mm-hmm. which has his coat which is a fantastic piece of costuming because oh, it's, it's glorious it's it's a lot of like triangular pieces of fabric of different colors yeah that are that are stitched together. It's very um D D party <laughs> like Yeah. It's got like iridescent bits and like it's very you know, it's very dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the thing that thinks of it for me is and I swear to God this is the only reference I will ever be able to make to that show. But it reminds me of the descriptions of Molly Mock's cloak from Critical Role. 
Um, <laughs> but like, and so like, it reminded me of that, like when I was watching that uh, for my rewatch, and I was just like, ooh, that, it's, it is a very cool costuming bit. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, another cool costuming bit is that um, while he's on dust, up until the point where he kind of comes out of the trance um you know with the in londo's quarters with all the destruction around him um they they've got black contacts in for jakar rather than his usual red yeah uh, that's a it's a nice touch because it does hint to you how how altered he is yeah i think it's time to talk about that his his dream sequence that he has i think it's yeah, so, like, he gets to find out everything, but it is a very dirty catharsis. Yeah, it's... Um, because he gets to, he gets the gnosis of it. He gets the, he gets the knowledge. Yeah. But he doesn't get any resolution to it, which yeah. I think is, so, it, it's a very good, um, it's a good beat for the character. It's not a, it's, it's very clear, like, that out of possibly more than any other character in this show, Jakar is... It has the long character arc. Yeah, he And is. this just gets to be the beat where he gets the knowledge of what happened and how it all, not even how it all fits together, but just that Malari is at the center of it all. And that is so good. He doesn't even get to do anything with it. He, he in fact, gets punished for it and he has to, you know, he's getting removed from the plot because of it. So there's like three things that happen in this vision. So one, he sees that Londo, his longtime frenemy, is not just the... He doesn't just represent the government that has is not, stopped Yeah, it's not him. just the representative of these people, but He's is in the fact... The architect yeah, not Yeah, the architect, the, the, the linchpin of the downfall of his people. And it brings him... He, that, he was, that, Londo was the first domino. Yeah, and that lifts him to this point of ultimate rage, like transcendent rage. Like, and then there's the revelation where he sees his father and he has this discussion with his father and where he's talking about uh, uh, honoring his father's name. Hmm. And then there's the part where it becomes, it, it moves from being less about honoring his father to transcending the war and everything else and about being you know saving the narn people in like the the long term like yeah. long term thinking and that's when it his father becomes jalan and we realize that he's not talking he's not having your run of the mill vision that he's talking to kosh yeah, yeah. I think there there are two specific quotes from Jalan that I want to highlight. The first one is when Jakar is speaking with Jalan, he, you know, says that, like, the Centauri have started this and we must finish it. And Jalan's response to that boils down to that it does not matter who started it anymore. It matters who is suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is something that's, like, especially with, like, long broiling conflicts like this you know the history gets forgotten but people still suffer and i think that's a it's it's a very interesting point of that bringing up but then jalan offers him something which is that you have the opportunity to be something something greater and far nobler and more difficult than you have been before and i think that last part is especially like that that's the last one is my favorite part of that mm -hmm. uh, because I you know like this this could have been something that is like very standard of like you can become great you can lead your people out of this but it, it is it is there with a price of this is going to be difficult yeah um, it is not going yeah. it is not going to be an easy thing you're not going to become a simple icon yeah. um, it's going to be challenging boy howdy that just makes it a little bit uh, Jakar's stepping he's been moving slowly in the direction of this arc for a while now and this is his first yeah. clean step onto a new path that is personally really meaningful to me and i'm so excited 
that we are now seeing it. He's taking a critical look at who he is, what he's done, who the who his people are, and what he stands for, and yeah. is has reflected on that and is moving forward. We've had Jakar the ambassador, and we've had Jakar the revolutionary, and now we're going to get. And we've we've had Jakar the Jakar the bloodthirsty asshole occasionally too. Yeah. And those all, I think, can be really summed up under Jakar, the freedom fighter. Because mm-hmm. those are all aspects of who he has been since he was a child and saw his father killed and was radicalized. He has been a freedom fighter and leader for his people since then. And every Jakar we've seen al- since then has been an, uh, just a different aspect of Jakar, the, freedom, the radicalized freedom fighter. That's 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 over now. Yeah. He will still lead his people and he will still desire their freedom. But he fundamentally is no longer that version of Jakar that is at its core a freedom fighter is over. A radical and a a, a revolutionary is done. That chapter is over. And. I'm gesticulating so that you can see my <laughs> emphasis and that makes good radio. Um, that's over. And we're going to see a new version of Jakar uh, in the coming episodes. And God, I love, I don't know if I've made it clear uh, that I love Jakar, but the... I love, Could I never guessed. Could I never really guessed. love Juk- this, this Jakar that's coming. Him being in prison. <laughs> also is such an interesting part of it because yeah. it gives him it gives him the quiet space that he needs to it kind of removes removes all the expectations from him. He doesn't have to do anything active. He can just sit there and think essentially. Yep. I actually want to rewind a little bit with this this whole Jakar vision thing uh, and note that one of the things I find really interesting is we have that montage where he's seeing all the stuff from Londo and it's the um, it's you know clip after clip of things that are each around I want to say like five to six frames what he's seeing is not just Londo's interactions with Morden or Londo watching over the bombing of Narn or any of those things. He's seeing Londo's visions too. Yeah. He's seeing Londo's visions of the shadow ships over Centauri. He's seeing Londo's visions of the hand reaching out. And I think, I think he even does he even see the vision of Londo's death? I'd have to go back and watch it. I know he sees old Londo, but I don't know that he sees himself strangling Londo. I, I should go back and watch that frame by frame again because it's very good. It's an extremely good montage sequence. And I find it fascinating that he's not just learning about Londo's past, he's learning all of these like Things that are internal to Londo. It's a fucking crazy moment in Jakar's arc, but also in the the arc of these two characters that have been entwined since the start of the show. It can't help but bring them, continue to entwine them. I don't know that it will necessarily bring them closer, but it, it can't help but further entwine them together. That they're they're kind of inextricably linked. I think we I think we should talk about Veer a little bit too. Oh, poor buddy. Yeah. Woof. Oh. Yeah. What a trip. He he's got a good job. He's got a new good job. And he's so, like, he's he's so enthusiastic about it. Part. Yep. Londo doesn't like his coat. Gets the shit beat out of him. Gets gets thrown around like a sack of laundry. Has his entire report or has a, has a very bad editor in Londo. Yeah. Um, I do actually want to like say that like. Like, I think it's, like, he does seem to have grown in a l- little bit. And especially we get a scene with Lanier, Lanier Delenn, and Veer talking about the situation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And uh, again, we get the the seeds of Veer being unable to really cope with the militarism and expansion campaign that that the Centauri are going through with. Yeah, uh, that's such a that's such an interesting scene because you know. Londo storms off, and the Drazi then storm off, and Veer hangs back so that he can talk to Delenn and Lanier uh, and about the situation. I have such conflicted feelings about that scene. There, well, there's a line. It's, it's, it's got such an interesting mix because there's that line where Delenn says something about like one of them is afraid. I, I but it's like oh yeah it's like one of them is afraid and the other one is like aggressive or something like well, that. Well it's like one is afraid and the other's a fool or something like that. Yeah. It's it's not really important but it's it's Veer wisely acknowledges that it's not clear which is which. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that um that he has that thing of you know t- telling which is which that's the that's the difficult part and it kind of catches that part catches delenn and lanier unawares i think that they're like oh that's surprisingly intuitive from you know yeah a centauri but they're clearly uncomfortable around him too yeah Yeah. and and then when you know he's like oh londo should come to centauri he would do him so much good and lanier's like no uh no, yeah. he's not welcome there. Yeah, a darkness within, you know, a darkness within cannot be cleared by traveling to a new place or something like that. And Veer like uh, he still he still holds out hope that Londo can be redeemed and it's so like heartbreaking because he's he's so wrong. Yeah. Yep. But he's a good boy. Yep. I got like one or two more bester things that I just want to Yeah. So I had a thought on this episode, which is that Bester, in the in the weirdest sense, is Garibaldi given a purpose, or like just the end state of. I mean, he's the end state of cop. Yeah, <laughs> but like, what it is is that Bester has an active role while Garibaldi has a passive role. Yeah. Well, I think that Bester is a character whose menace comes from power. And his convictions, I think, as well. Yeah, well, conviction. But I mean, his. It, but it comes from he has he it comes from a power that is not derived solely from uh, authority. Mm. And Garibaldi has nothing except authority and a willingness to do violence. Like I think that's what makes v- Bester sp- like a spooky version, and I think that's kind of a weird. That's a weird thing that about like the psychop or like the the cop with a power trope, like like Bester, like other ones like him, other tropes like him is mm-hmm. he's it somehow like makes the cop less cop like when their power comes from something that is not being a like being a cop. But at the same time, I feel like Bester is at his most cop this episode. Yeah, because he because his power is gone. The the sigh the is gone. All that's left is cop. Yeah, all that's left is cop. So what does he do? He threatens people with a he 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 leans on the badge and bluffs and flirts with another cop. It's not that he just leans on the badge. He plays into expectations and perceptions. Yeah. Um. Like I mean, gosh, I want to have a dear back so we can talk about this more in Bester queerness. But like, he leans into people what people expect of him. Yeah. And. People expect, like, like nobody, like, the, um, I can't remember his name, but the person they drag into the interrogation room doesn't know that he has, like, he's on telepathic suppressors. So, when he's like, yeah, he's lying. And, like, part of that is just, like, Bester knows people. And, like, he's, yeah. he's a study, or he's a student of people and criminals and behavior. And he knows how to call out a liar. Yeah. And he doesn't need his powers for that. But he still plays into what people expect so he can use the full force of what he has. Even if he can't actively use it. I do also have, like, a thing that, like, I noticed during this episode. Uh, So, uh, the affectation that 
Walter Canning plays Bester with not using his left hand at all, like that it is critically damaged, leads it so that he does not grip a PPG normally. Instead, he holds PPG with... He, he does it in a very specific way, which is with his left arm crossed in front of him and his right arm... It, it is right arm Braced on top of the left arm, yeah. which yeah. is... It's actually a... It's, that is a pistol stance. It's a, it's a... I believe it's called Harry's stance. Uh, named a, or named after the Marine who came up with it. And you're normally supposed to hold a flashlight in your left hand. But it's just... It's a very interesting thing. It's, mm-hmm. yeah. it's a very cop thing. Yeah. Like, it, it's basically like... If, if I remember right, there are two ways cops hold a gun. It's that and... Isos- and what's called isosceles. And it's like the, those two things are just like... They're the most common things. And it's just like... It's a it's a very specific thing that just like oh ha huh, that um, like I'm not even sure how intentional that is but it's uh, just the, with the way it correlates with real life is a very interesting thing because it's a very like military and cop thing yeah and that that hand thing is also so interesting because it's it's one of those subtle acting choices that lends a surprising amount of depth to the character without without even realizing it. Yeah, it's a good visual notation to the character. Like you you can see him moving. I don't know, it just gives it a physicality. I guess is yeah. I think what I'm trying to say. For somebody who is not very physically imposing. No. Yeah. The one last thing I want to put in here, um just to call it out is that the person who voices Jaquan at the end, like the, the the disembodied voice of Jaquan, is Jim Norton, who played Dr. Lazarin in uh, Confessions and Lamentations. Beautiful. Excellent. And Ombudsman Wellington in season one. Beautiful. So now we're going to move on to the better of our two episodes, which is uh, season three, episode seven, Exogenesis, uh, written by JMS and directed by Kevin G. Kremen. We start off with a ship coming into Babylon 5, with two people remarking ominously, they're finally here. But exposition is for chumps. Corwin's getting promoted to a full lieutenant. With his new responsibilities, the staff talks about him getting brought onto the conspiracy. Garibaldi questions about whether Marcus should have been invited to this party, but Ivanova says that he's not an Earth Force officer. They toast to keeping everything quiet, and for the station to continue to be boring as it has been today, or the previous day. And down below, we see a guy going through some rather painful changes while the two people watching uh, the ship earlier urge him to relax. However, there is a gross bug thing on his spine that is melting into his flesh. Gross. As they watch, another man warns that security is coming and they lead the dude on the ground. Back in CNZ, Sheridan has Ivanova start to investigate Corwin to figure out if he can be brought into their little conspiracy of light. And down below, Marcus visits a shopkeeper, Duncan, and they have a Shakespearean back and forth of the Scottish play. When Duncan coughs, Marcus suggests he go to the clinic, but Duncan doesn't like doctors. Marcus buys something from Duncan and goes about his day. Back in the alien bar, Marcus meets with a contact who's a report from Ranger 1. Rangers are being requested to withdraw from Earth space. Something's going on back home. Additionally, shadow ships are massing to create a border with the Centauri. The contact also mentions that a package from Mars that is en route within the week. Mark remarks that his usual contact, Samuel, has gone missing, and Marcus decides to pay him a visit. Marcus meets with Samuel and finds he's met some new people, including those ship watchers from the start of the episode. Samuel says that he can't work with Marcus anymore, and he needs to do things. When Marcus inquires what things is, he's met with cold stares. Marcus excuses himself. After he leaves, we see Samuel return to Duncan, who has one of the bug things on his spine now. In MedLab, the med staff has a meeting and they report the first body we saw who was left behind, and Franklin decides to proceed with an autopsy. He finds that the victim died under a great deal of fear and stress. There is an anomaly, however, on his spinal column. Franklin cracks him open like a lobster to take a look, and pulls something clear and stringy out of the spine, and has it tested further. It is a genetically neutral material, meaning this organism can attach to any other life form. It doesn't look like any parasite Franklin has seen before. Back in Down Below, Marcus returns to Duncan's store and finds him missing, and learns that he had packed away and left. Back in CNC, 
Ivanova tries to make small talk with Corwin and invites him to speak in her quarters private later. Corwin definitely takes us a date when she invites him for coffee. Marcus approaches Garibaldi, who dismisses his worries about Samuel and Duncan out of hand, because Garibaldi is in fact a great officer who serves his community. I'm sorry, I can't say that with a straight face. Um, he tries to get Garibaldi to recognize there is a problem, but he can't convince Garibaldi, so he goes to visit Franklin. Marcus assures him that it won't take more than an hour, so the two of them go to investigate. Out of the Zoclo, Corwin buys some flowers for Ivanova. He buys some artificial roses and a poor buddy. Such a poor sap. Marcus goes to Duncan's quarters and finds that he is not there. Franklin opens the door, and Marcus just rushes in. Inside, Marcus finds that something has burned through a bulkhead and left some sort of sticky web residue. Inventure Himbo decides to just (laughs) rush through the hole and makes his way through the weird cobwebs, where he finds a dude with a weird bulging thing on his back. However, some people with guns show up and put them in a cell. Franklin is able to figure out that this is an alien parasite that takes control of the host. Dr. Franklin thinks this is a huge security threat, but Marcus notes that the only victims here have been lurkers and other loners. Franklin pleads to be let out to help the new host on the floor as he's in pain, but the aliens refuse to let either of them go. Franklin remarks that it's a good thing that Garibaldi knows where they are, but uh, Marcus, my perfect angel, may have stretched the truth here, and they're down alone. Corwin, meanwhile, visits Ivanova's quarters, and Corwin lies, saying that he found the roses. Ivanova believes that she has to get to the bottom of this because it's just so sweet. Ivanova and Corwin talk over coffee, and Ivanova grills him, which definitely leads to Corwin explaining that they have to respect the chain of command. It almost sounds like Ivanova's trying to get him to commit treason, but eh. <laughs> Duncan visits Marcus and Franklin in their cell, and Duncan is looking quite sprightly when he visits them. They inquire about who these aliens are. Duncan explains that these aliens are the Vindrizi, and their process is voluntary. Duncan says that the victim in med lab there was in poor health, and the drugs in his system made him reject the process. After Duncan leaves, Marcus asks Franklin what he thinks of Ivanova in a weird non sequitur. <laughs> Franklin assures him that her distancing is just that she's getting adjusted to him. And Marcus believes that there is something undiscovered in her, a key yet to be turned. Franklin believes Marcus is nuts and says he's not even the same galaxy as Ivanova. I choose to believe that this is Franklin trying to clue Marcus into the fact that Ivanova doesn't like men. <laughs> I mean, we know that Ivanova likes men. But no, it's... we know that at one point Ivanova married a man that was pure scum, but we don't know that that means she likes men. I don't think she married the dude, but, it, but she... She was at one point in a serious relationship with a dude who was pure scum. I choose to believe what I choose to believe. Yeah. (laughs) The leader of the Vindrizi take Franklin to see one of their sick and order Franklin to save him. Franklin bullshits his way and says that the only way to save him is to remove the parasite. I really don't know where you got that from, buddy. But the aliens refuse and insist that both be saved. Marcus, meanwhile, back in the cell, tricks the guards into knocking themselves out with the expanding fighting pike and escapes from the cell. He tries to use Franklin's lake, but it alerts security to its unauthorized use, and Garibaldi sends a team down to Brown Sector. Marcus adventure himbo splinter cells his way through another guard with a tennis ball, and busts into the operating room. Marcus tries to bluff their way out of it, but Duncan reveals that all of the hosts have volunteered, and that nobody's being held under arrest. They explain that the Vindrizi were bred to be living records, and that they offer people who are hopeless or failing, a chance and save them. When Marcus and Franklin express doubt, Duncan gives the ultimate leap of faith. The parasite leaves his body, and Duncan explains that he was speaking the truth, that he was trying to serve a greater purpose. Franklin agrees to help them, but with his supervision. Back in CNC the next day, Ivanova reports in, giving him a negative report on Corwin. Back in customs, Duncan is leaving. Marcus pleads that he would miss Duncan, but he believes he cannot stay or go back. Duncan wants to see what he's being exposed to, and he wants to be special one more time. Back in the bar, Garibaldi, Ivanova, and Franklin talk about the Vindrizi, and everything checks out. They're really just secretive living libraries. Garibaldi asks Franklin about how Marcus did, and Franklin praises his performance, and lets slip that Marcus is interested in Ivanova. Susan believes that Marcus was the one who sent the flowers. She rushes off and shoves the roses at Marcus, telling him to keep them. 
Marcus's response, I will. This is the best part of the episode, is how excited Marcus is to get flowers from Ivanova. This is the episode when I rewatched that, like, I really, like, got that Marcus is a fucking himbo. He gets through this entire episode entirely on idiot charm, basically. Like, it's remarkable that he survives this. He takes down a dude with a gun with a tennis ball. God, it's so dumb. It's so it's dumb. Perfect. It's so good. His fighting staff, uh, again, deployed. It's not even a fighting staff. It's like, it's like a, a, a what do you call it? A, it's um, like a bow staff in a can. Yeah, it's like yeah, exactly. It's the can of worms. It, it, it's like a, a a concussion and a can of worms. You know, <laughs> that's all it is. Yeah. I mean, oh god, I. I love and hate this episode. The whole plot with the Vendrizi is fucking stupid, but everything it's, with it's so bad. Ev- everything it's... with Marcus is gold, and I had forgotten until we watched it's it so... recently when we were all watching it together. The whole thing with Corwin and his aggressively <laughs> awkward not date with uh, Ivanova. Oh God! Especially the the flower seller um, who's like. He, he's talking with Corwin. He's like, Corwin's like, no, no, she invited me in. And the the flower seller's like, oh, aggressive, is she? And Corwin's <laughs> like, you could say that, yes. <laughs> Poor Corwin. I just want to imagine that, like, among the junior staff of Babylon 5, there's a, there's like rumors about whether Ivanova dates. And, like, I'm pretty sure that at least a third of the junior staff truly believe that Ivanova just kills her mates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody, uh, s- somebody plays taps as Corwin leaves for the date as he goes by. <laughs> I want, okay, this is what I want. I want to do fanfic about like, Bullshit stuff that the junior staff of B five, like the B five C and C, believe. Yeah, God, they uh, lead yeah. weird lives, don't they? I, they, they like, like how do you bonker stuff happens on like around them, and they're just like sitting there. Like, there's the one guy whose job it is to like man the radar. Boop, boop, boop. Like that's his job is to watch the bleeps. And, like, there's, like, weird alien shit, and Ivanova orders him out, and he comes back, and the, the, the fucking defense array has been reset. And he's like, what is going on here? So, okay, I want to go through some funny things, but, like, gosh, Corwin is just, like, I like that he gets, he gets, he gets a, this is a good thing for, like, our, our good boys getting some more expansion, because this is, like, the first episode that's, like, had some Corwin-centric stuff. Corwin's not on CNC for once. Yeah. The yeah. first time. He has a name and he gets a scene outside of CNC. Multiple scenes. Yeah. I mean, and we and this is Marcus's only this is only Marcus's second Oh no no, it's his third episode. It's third, his third episode. Third episode, and he gets to splinter cell around all over the down down below. <laughs> Yeah, I like how he's just like how it's like confirmed that like he's he's actually like been putting in the work like he actually has like oh yeah I he's got like a whole spy network on the station yeah he's like mobilized down below for uh, an information network yeah okay is it- my head cannon is that my head cannon is that he has never read anything that was published outside of the UK before like. 19 like 1950 so he read sherlock holmes and was like hmm irregulars hmm and just went down to down below and was like you look like a filthy urchin you'll do (laughs) oh back in the corwin thing this is another instance of somebody not getting to finish their coffee nobody finishes their coffee yes Nobody gets to finish their coffee, like, they just get to have meetings cut short, and it's just like, no, you don't get a to-go cup, bye, yeah. bye. Ivanova just shoes him out, and he's just like, but my coffee! Yeah. I do have my two favorite uh, Marcus quotes from this episode. Oh, please, I'm dying. Yes. Um. So Marcus in the cell says, we just need one of the three to leave, then there will only be one man with a gun. Franklin says, where I come from... What if one from three means two remaining? And Marcus' response is, where I come from is a far more interesting place. 
it's so dumb it's it's classic it's it's classic himbo math where it's like it doesn't have to make sense it just sounds good i'm pretty enough that you'll ignore it that it doesn't make any sense god he's super though um and the last one is like by the way like once he's taken out two guards he's just got two pbgs and he's just cowboying it up yeah uh he's he's a good boy franklin is about to deliver some sort of threat and Marcus is like, no, no, it, it won't be good coming from you. Nobody will believe it. <laughs> like, and, so, and then as he's about to spring up, he says, for the record, this is not a good idea on my part, <laughs> which is, holy crap. I want to, I want to, I, I, it's like, I don't want to meet Marcus. I want to meet the person playing Marcus as a character in an RPG. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like. I might be that person. Yeah. I want to meet them still. Yeah. I also love the moment where, like, after he has the discussion with Garibaldi, where Garibaldi blows him off, he goes to Franklin and is like, Garibaldi suggested that I come and talk to you. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he looks He's, so full of shit. I, I have to say, at least with the Franklin-Marcus adventure, unlike the Franklin-Garibaldi adventure, there are no Nutrigate bars. Yeah, no Nutri-Grain bars, no two liters of lube. <laughs> nope. I would like to say that I don't want to talk about the Vindrizi. I think no, the story, the plot is stupid and pointless. The only thing I do want to say about it is that uh, I firmly believe that this is JMS trying to do his version of Star Trek TNG episode conspiracy. Air quotes, only better just to show that he can. It's sort of like the trill, too. Or if we want to talk about Stargate, it's sort of like the gold. I mean, they're all kind of the same thing, but I think, I mean, Conspiracy literally has like bugs that look just like these bugs that crawl into people's brains and like have like a little hive mind and have like, are an ancient, like they're essentially the same bug just with different goals. Yeah. But I just, my head, my personal head canon is that this, this is just jms being a dick about a star trek episode that is widely regarded as terrible um yeah and so he consequently wrote an episode of babylon 5 that is widely regarded as terrible (laughs) hey everybody's gotta have a couple i i like i honestly think this is like apart from the the gold corwin and marcus stuff like this is a very forgettable episode it's definitely Um, bottom five like uh, that we've seen so far the Marcus and Corwin stuff aside, Justin, Justin there's has nothing yet redeemable. To see Grey Thirteen. <laughs> That's right. Woof. Yeah, there's there's still room to room to fall. The one thing I do want to say about the Vendrizi that I did like the, the literal only thing is that uh, it continues with the the vibe of like that the tech the techno mages are like getting the hell out of Dodge because they know something's up and the Vindrizi are too. So it's like, you know, a bunch a bunch of people know that something bad's gonna gonna go down and they're doing the sensible thing and getting the fuck out of there. Yeah. Apparently JMS even thinks that this is just an okay episode. About halfway God, through writing I... it, he apparently got pulled away for some production issue and forgot what he was doing with the episode. Because he wasn't making notes as he was writing it. So he had to come back to the script and then like... I mean, it feels that way. Re-remember what he was doing with with writing the script. And so the, what he came away from this script was always make notes as you're writing a script. So that if you ever have to like drop it and come back, you can remember what your thought process was. I, I think this is a thing where it's like that alone proves... That just to make it as a creative, you have to have just like a sheer belief in what you are doing. Yeah. That's almost delusional where you think this is an acceptable product to put on television. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I will forgive anything that gives us good Marcus content. Um, like this is like the, the, the 15 minutes of this episode that are just like Marcus rollicking his way through the station quoting shakespeare meeting with people wafting his beautiful hair about and like running around being a secret agent is perfection Mm -hmm. the rest of this episode is (laughs) i feel like that's 
I, I feel like we can wrap it up. I, I feel like yeah. that's... Yeah. I have yeah. literally nothing else to add, and I sort of refuse to admit that there could be anything else to add beyond that. Other than, like, the... Uh, our, our... What's it called? Our, our uh, bits and bobs. So I got two two on here. The, the This is an episode that doesn't even have, like, good... Oh, hey, I know that person. James Warwick, who played, like, the lead Vendrizi dude... Uh, voiced Qui-Gon Jinn in several Star Wars video games. Not even cartoons, just video games. Yeah, just video <laughs> games. I played a lot of Jedi Power Battles at a friend's house when I was a kid. Fair enough. Um, and so that, that stuck with me. Also, the bartender in Earhearts, Cat is played by a woman named Cat uh, Cressida. Who, she just has a lot of video game voice acting credits and good on her. Yeah, She's active like today. She was in Mass Effect Andromeda even. And like the two most recent fallouts. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's really, that's all we've got here. All right. Um, do you know what, do do you know what we we get to do next episode? Y'all. What have we arrived at? We are almost at the midway point. Oh, dang. Holy crap. We are almost halfway through this bananas show for episode 28. Next time. We are going to be doing the double header of Messages from Earth and Point of No Return. Dang. This is going to be the first of two episodes which are covering sort of what is the end of the first half of the series. Episode after that is going to be Severed Dreams and Ceremonies of Light and Dark, which are, I think, sort of the... These are basically the four episodes that are really going to shake things up and kick off the Shadow War in good, earnest uh, detail. So, yeah, next time. Messages from Earth and Point of No Return. Until next time, be seen. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.